If your tears are precious memories, imagine a receptacle for them. An imaginary one, any size or material, could be all your precious tears and losses. And what would this container be made of? It could be gold or gossamer, dew or music, a kiss or a colour, velvet or cold rain, leaves or books, skin or sea, laughter or food, childhood or anything else you can think of. I'm interested in tears primarily as an example of bodily fluids and particularly how bodily fluids might be perceived as symptomatic of some other states in the body or mind. The way in which my work relates to tears is there is a rather interesting social experiment performed by psychiatrist Neil Kessel in the middle of the 1960s in Edinburgh. I have not come across a lot of tear bottles in my research. I thought that I might come across more images and representations of tear bottles. I have not come across a lot of them. But this is a particularly interesting example of one. You can see the, the typical form of the tear bottle. Long, elongated neck and body, mostly in the beautiful uh, kind of pale blue-green colour, but one with a rather nice amber touch to it. I would have a pouch made with puffs of clouds lined in ivory silk and stitched with green grass, secured by secret embroidery and undone just by intention. I don't know how it would not get wet, though the tears would be droplets. I would not like time, a tear bottle. Not hard. Or you ice. shed your tears, get wet that they don't fall out. Don't carry your tears, Important or they go under your in. skin. I take things out Feel of boxes, the tears of but need boxes to put them back in. It is difficult not I think to mine be would be a perfect cube in glass, all of a piece and hollow. It is tragic to lose the ability to cry. It would fill up inside. For survival, it would you just need to fill shed up tears. with tears. Feel the wetness of what changes when you cry. You are not losing the memory. I take things out of boxes, to terms with but need boxes things. to put them back in. to my office and that'll be more quiet. Well, what we have here are, are four examples of the perfume bottles, which by some people are called uh, unguentaria, unguent bottles, but by other people are called tear bottles. Lacrimatoria is, is one term that has been used. You can see the, the typical form of the tear bottle, long, elongated neck and body, mostly in the, the beautiful uh, kind of pale blue-green colour, but one with a rather nice amber touch to it and the reason that these bottles are found in such numbers um, we have 
thousands of them in our collections in the British Museum. The reason is that, that they're uh, perfume bottles. They contain perfume which will be placed with the deceased in the grave. This could be where some of the confusion has arisen about the tears, because they are found in graves. It's interesting to think, oh, maybe they did contain the tears, but actually, from analysis of lots of residues, and many of them have been found complete, stoppered and, and intact, we can tell that they are based on oil and uh, plant essences, and this means perfume. There are the classic tear bottles with this lovely elongated shape, but you also have perfume bottles which are nothing like that. You have the uh, novelty bottles. In fact, we have one here that is shaped as a large and rather luscious date, and you have others that are shaped as seashells or heads. In popular culture these days, there's somehow this idea that these were... Uh, to do with mourning, to do with collecting tears. Mm. Is there any evidence for that at all? Uh, I've looked quite quite extensively in Latin literature. There's no evidence for people collecting tears in bottles. It simply wasn't part of the mourning ceremony for the Romans from the evidence that we have. My focus is particularly on general paralytic patients, which many historians now understand as neurosyphilis. And general paralysis, as it was discussed in the 19th century, was a condition that had many signs and symptoms, both mental and physical. And I'm particularly interested in the post-mortem and how pathology was used to understand the disease. And when doctors were opening up these bodies at post-mortem, they were it, very struck it seems when you read the notes and the articles about how the body was almost liquefying and degenerating from the inside out. So they would talk about muscles and bones turning to fats and becoming softer. about the brain being surrounded by excess cerebrospinal fluid. And all of those things suggested that there was very much a decay within the body, which fitted into this idea of general paralysis at the time, of being something that was tied more widely and more broadly in society to moral decay. The idea that general paralytics were people who had contracted some kind of sexual disease and were immoral people in various ways. Doctors, in their language that they used, you can see them linking these ideas of wider society and the risk that these patients posed as vectors of disease to the internal decay of their bodily fabric. Did anyone else say glass? Incredibly thin glass, like the stamen of a flower or an amphora teardrop. Slightly blue, extremely fragile. It can't be held, the merest knock and it would break. Made of love, 
darker than at first sense, consoling, a holding, some deep memory. What is lost are the labels. A twist of two different things, crystal sharp and some kind of light. Thousands in a storeroom for use in graves. And a tear contained? It's possible. No one can say no. One of the sources that I found most intriguing is an engraving of a picture by William Hogarth, the 18th century artist and satirist. It's called Enthusiasm Delineated, and it was made in 1760. It's a very complicated image, very busy and hectic picture. The centre of it is a preacher, a very large, corpulent preacher, who's based on the real-life 18th-century Methodist George Whitfield. So Whitfield is preaching, and the, the rabble of a congregation around him, including men, women, children, dogs, are reacting in very extreme ways. And just beneath Whitfield's pulpit, there is a man who, by his handcuffs and the brand on his head, we know is a thief, a convict, and his hands are clasped in prayer. He's a penitent thief, and he is weeping, and a miraculous apparition of Christ is holding a tear bottle, and this penitent thief is weeping into the tear bottle. So did they think of tears as basically like leaking in some kind of a way? Was that part of the picture? Was that just a kind of yet another kind of too much wet? I think tears, as far as I can tell in my asylum records, were seen as generally symptomatic of genuine distress. They were seen as being a sign of depression, of emotional pain. But at the same time, the way that tears are described, and they're not actually described that often in the case books, um, there'll be much more general assertions like in a depressed state, very upset. So in that sense, it's, it's not always possible to recover tears in that way. But there are a few instances where a doctor will talk about a patient blubbering and crying like a spoiled child, which is interesting to me because of the language that's been used. So there's a very judgmental aspect in some of the language and some of the language as well is is betraying that sense of the patient as being chaotic generally, of being this body that does leak fluid all the time, um, cerebrospinal fluid or semen or tears, several things. So that comes through in the language that they're used and it's interesting to me the way that bodily symptoms and bodily signs like crying or something are actually inscribed in that historical record. So they're re-inscribed by a doctor after an examination and then we have to then interpret them again as historians. George Whitfield himself, who's in the centre of this Hogarth image, was known as the Weeping Prophet because he was so famous for his tearful preaching. He would preach for hours at a time, and it was very exhausting for him. There are pictures of him preaching with a handkerchief held up in his hand, and he, he was famous for his tears. And he expected his congregation to weep as well as a sign of their 
enthusiasm, that's a word that's used all the time, but of, of their piety and also of their proper sense of penitence at their sinful nature. At the heart of Methodist religion is the strong sense of one's own terrible sinful nature and having to turn dramatically and emotionally and violently away from that sinful nature towards Christ and tears, uh, you know, a, a proper outpouring, outflow of tears was a sign that that had happened. If they didn't use tear bottles, were there other rituals of mourning that you have evidence for? Yes, you would have the ritual wailing. You would have people paid to come to the house and wail as they mourned. There would be various ceremonies connected with the body, washing the body, preparing the body. You have perfume being a constant from the early burials right the way through. And in fact, before the Romans, the Greeks bury perfume bottles with their dead. I've actually excavated tombs of Greek burials and Roman burials, and they both have little perfume bottles. It was a very important element all the way through classical tradition, this idea that perfumes will make the air more fragrant, make you more fragrant as you make your journey to the underworld. This is the first century. Bay of Naples for roses, lilies, violets. From Egypt and the East, bergamot, cinnamon, cloves. Perfumiers are named on Pompeii's wall. I have not come across a lot of tear bottles in my research. I thought that I might come across more images and representations of tear bottles. I have not come across a lot of them. But this is a particularly interesting example of one. Um, and it's clearly a deliberate allusion to a particular passage in the Bible, which is a psalm where the psalmist is, is praying for relief from his tormentors. And there's a phrase addressed to God, Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? So that's about God collecting our tears, collecting our sufferings, almost like prayers uh, in themselves or, or signs of our suffering and giving them to God the same way that God has a book in which he knows all our doings. He has a bottle in which he collects all our tears. So that's a very powerful religious image from the time. If your tears are precious memories, Imagine a receptacle for them. Now that all sounds quite pious and lovely, but there are much coarser elements to it as well. The Christ figure seems to be farting. There's a gust of wind coming out from the back of the Christ figure, which is not a normal um, <laughs> bit of religious iconography. Uh, and that is a satirical allusion to the heavenly wind, which was a concept used by Methodists for the kind of spiritual enthusiasm that they experienced. And then next to the, the thief and Christ is a couple who are not really engrossed in the sermon, but in each other. A man is surreptitiously sliding his hand into a young woman's dress and dropping from in front of them is a massive wooden religious icon, which doesn't take too much uh, imagination to interpret as a kind of phallic symbol. 
So we have here religious weeping, ostensibly, but being satirised as a rather base, bodily, even perhaps quasi-sexual uh, reaction as part of this whole image that Hogarth is using to satirise Methodist tears. I veer towards a book, the same book, a catalogue, not diary, various handwriting over years, hard-backed, dark blue and kept hidden, covered in music, parts falling off. I take things out of boxes, but need boxes to put them back in. I can always make a box for things, that's me. And the tears in my cube would be a way to measure the truth about the past as an aspiration, the doubt to make one think. I take things out of boxes, my perfect joinless cube, but need boxes to put them back in. There is a rather interesting social experiment performed by psychiatrist Neil Kessel in the middle of the 1960s in Edinburgh. Neil Kessel is specifically interested in what he calls self-poisoning, but what is called generally attempted suicide. And his work is in a, a tradition of psychiatrists who believe that people who attempt suicide are not necessarily trying to die, they're trying to do something else, they're trying to, to cry for help. And what Neil Kessel does is he hires an actor, a female actor, to go into six different chemist shops around Edinburgh in floods of tears. And for him, the fact that she's in floods of tears means that it's very obvious to him that she is in distress and he asks her to buy 200 aspirin in each shop. And for him, connecting these floods of tears with the buying of 200 aspirin says in his world that she is clearly a suicide risk. But she gets served in every shop. My work is looking at how these tears, what Neil Castle calls distress, is really central to his category of self-poisoning, of attempted suicide, because he believes that whilst all of these people are acting in a disordered way, taking overdoses, they don't all have a psychiatric problem. And so he uses this category of distress to say that some people under the right conditions, under conditions of distress, could act in disordered ways without being mentally ill. What's interesting is the way he chooses to make this obvious to people, or what he thinks is obvious, is by crying. If you go into a shop in floods of tears and ask for aspirin in a large quantity, that, in his world, is self-evident, but clearly to everybody else, the meaning of these tears is not quite so self-evident, or they probably wouldn't be selling her the aspirin. This excess cerebrospinal fluid was something that inspired them to undertake what they thought were therapeutic interventions during life. So if a patient who had general paralysis of the insane, for example, was found to have excess cerebrospinal fluid at post-mortem, it would seem 
quite commonsensical that perhaps to relieve the symptoms during life, what you had to do was to get rid of this excess fluid, which led to several attempts at trepanation, which is making a hole in the skull to relieve pressure by allowing excess fluid to drain away. There were two doctors at Banstead Asylum who did this and wrote several articles about the procedures that they'd performed, claiming that it had relieved symptoms in several patients, but it did lead to quite a backlash amongst other practitioners at the time who said that these patients, these asylum patients, were people who were already very vulnerable to injuries by their state of mind, and it was not an acceptable thing to be doing to to do these kind of experiments on that particular patient body. People have long thought the significance of tears obvious, whether it's laughter or crying. People trust themselves to be able to tell which is which in context. Um, But I think the interesting thing for me is is that whilst these tears were so obvious in one sense, the this category of distress that, that Kessel was, was building as the foundation to his uh, category of self-poisoners, that's really complicated. I don't cry when I'm happy, but giving the vows at my wedding, tears came upon me like gravity. It looks like a teardrop. It's, it's a great big elongated blob of glass. It could be gold or gossamer, dew or music, a kiss or a colour, velvet or cold rain, leaves or books, skin or sea, laughter or food, childhood or anything else you can think of. But of course this is the best, cheapest, easiest way to blow a bottle. You simply blow an elongated bubble, and that's what these bottles are, sometimes with a bit of refinement on the body or or the neck. But Roman glass blowing coming about in about 50 BC transforms the use of packaging. I would have a pouch made with puffs of clouds, lined in ivory silk and stitched with green grass, secured by secret embroidery, and undone just by intention. People go from pottery bottles for perfume to glass, because glass was odourless, it was not permeable, you didn't have to coat it on the interior with slip as you had to do with pottery, and it's transparent, so you can actually see the perfume inside. Don't carry your tears, or they go under your skin. So it's the revolution in glass technology that makes these possible. Otherwise we have to think, well, what did the Romans do before they invented glass? But where did they put their tears before then? 
You can't get inside my perfect joinless queue. Except those tears, just filling up, filling up.